Hey, welcome back to another episode of Sitting at the Feet of Jesus. I'm your host, Patrick Ransom, and today we're going to look at part one of loving the unlovable. How do we go about in our day-to-day lives of loving the unlovable? And to respond to that question, we have to first define what do we mean when we say the word love? And second, who are the unlovable? So our first question is, what do we mean when we say the word love? I mean, I can say, I love French fries. I love my wife. I love my new Nike running shoes. I love Jesus. I mean, friends, we use the word love a thousand different ways, a thousand different times each and every single day. And simply through its overuse, we've somehow lost what it means to actually love. When you think about it, we love everything. So we don't always have a very nuanced understanding of what it means to love. Now, if we're going to ask ourselves this question, how do we love the unlovable? We're going to need to know what we mean by the word love. And friends, the culture, the society tells us one thing about love, and the Bible tells us something completely different. So let's look real quick at the cultural love versus biblical love. Cultural love often is associated with an emotion or a feeling. I feel like I'm on love, or he or she loves me. I know this because I feel it. Right? I was watching the news the other day, and they were announcing the wedding of Jennifer Lopez and Ben Affleck. Um, and they asked Jennifer Lopez, and she said, Oh, Ben Affleck, he is the love of my life. Right? The problem with this, friends, is this is Jennifer Lopez's sixth marriage and Ben Affleck's third. Cultural love, cultural love is associated with an emotion or a feeling, and because it is associated with an emotion or feeling, it's temporary. It means it doesn't last. Have you ever tried to hang a picture in your house with a hammer and a nail, and you slipped and you've hit your thumb with the hammer? Friends, I've done this, and immediately you grab your thumb. Sometimes you dance around the room in a little in a little dance of pain, but eventually that pain subsides. It goes away. That pain was only temporary. That emotion, that feeling was only temporary. And and if the culture tells us that love is an emotion or feeling and it's temporary, it's no wonder our divorce rate is what it is in the United States. Cultural love is also self-centered. I I saw a, a women's health magazine the other day right on the front. It said, what have you done for me lately? Meaning, what have you done? How have you loved me lately? It's very me-centered, me-centric. Cultural love is all about the self. Cultural love is also conditional. I'll love you if, or I'll love you when you start doing something or stop doing something. Cultural love is conditional. Whereas biblical love, we've often heard, is unconditional. I actually like what David Powelson says. He says God's love is, get this, contra-conditional, in that it's contrary to what you and I deserve. It's not merited. 1 John 4.19 says we love, meaning that we are able to love others because he, Christ, first loved us. 
biblical love is contra-conditional. Biblical love is also other-centered. Have you noticed this? Anytime you go to a wedding, what's the what's the go-to verse they always say? 1 Corinthians 13, right? Love is patient and it's kind, does not envy or boast, it's not arrogant or rude. But get this, we often skip by this. Biblical love does not insist on its own way. It's other-centered. John 15, 13 also tells us that biblical love is sacrificial in nature. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Biblical love is other-centered and sacrificial. And because it's not temporary, like the culture, biblical love is enduring. 26 times in just 26 verses in Psalm 136 alone, we're reminded of God's enduring love. And lastly, biblical love is not an emotion or a feeling. It is an action, such as obedience. It's something that we demonstrate. In John 14, 15, Jesus says, If you love me, what? You'll obey my commands, right? We, it's a demonstrated action. Biblical love is this way. So when we talk about loving the unlovable, we're talking here about biblical love, which is an action, which is enduring, which is other-centered, sacrificial, and contra-conditional. So when we say the word love, we know what we're talking about. So who then is this group of unlovable? Who are we to say are the unlovable? And to answer that question, we're going to look at probably one of the most famous parables of all time, that is the parable of the Good Samaritan. Friends, even your unchurched or your unbelieving friends have heard of this parable before, most likely. They will say something like this. It's about somebody who gets hurt, a couple of people uh, pass them by, one person who is unlikely candidate helps that person be like that person, right? That's, that's the summation of what most people, unchurched, and probably some church folks would say about the Good Samaritan. Here's... Here's as we dive into this, asking this question, who are the unlovable? We're going to look at this parable, but the parable is framed beforehand, verses 25 through 29 precede it, and then it's end capped with verses 36 and 37. And when we understand what's going on here in this interchange, it's not just the parable that Jesus is using, but it's the entirety of it, and it's and it's profound. It really is. Look with me here in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 and following. It says, One day an expert in religious law, this is a Jewish lawyer, stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. And he says, Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say and how do you read it? And the man says, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. Oh, and and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus tells him, verse 28, do this and you will live. The man wanting to justify his action says to Jesus, well, then who then is my neighbor? I I love this beginning interaction between this Jewish lawyer and Jesus, and it's in the the context of a Jewish audience, which this is being uh, overheard, and the question itself that this lawyer is presenting to Jesus basically contradicts the core of Jesus' teaching. 
Because inheritance, if you think about it, in any form is a result of a relationship. It's not a goal achieved through some effort. If you've ever lost somebody that you love and you've inherited something from them, uh, friends, you didn't inherit that because you did something. It's because of that relationship you had with that person. Uh, Eternal life is a gift we inherit from God through our relationship with him, not something we earn through works or righteousness. And I love here, Jesus, he points him here. He says, well, what then is, does the law say, or how do you interpret it? How do you understand it? And, and y'all, the lawyer responds correctly with a great commandment, right? You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. But I would imagine he reads this last part going, oh, and love the neighbor as your um, <clears throat> yourself, right? Because because he's he's realized he's kind of trapped himself with this the neighbor portion of this statement, right? He's looking for a loophole by asking Jesus, who then is my neighbor? And I don't want you to miss this because in the Jewish culture, only a fellow Jew was considered to be a neighbor. Gentiles weren't considered neighbors. The lawyer was implying here he was he has fulfilled the law by treating his fellow Jew with respect and keeping with the law. Therefore, he has earned his way into eternal life by complying with the law, not through some personal relationship with God, to which Jesus then says, let me tell you the story of the, par- of the Good Samaritan, this parable of the Good Samaritan. Listen with me here in verse 30. It says, Jesus replied with this story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him for half dead beside the road. The road, y'all, from Jericho to Jerusalem is about 18 miles long, and it was common for travelers of the ancient times on this path to come under some attack from bandits or thieves who would hide in the mountains. And so as the travelers would take this path, the bandits would come down and they would basically mug them. And it says that this Jewish man was one such victim, that they beat him, they stripped him, they took his clothes, which were both rare and of high value, and they left him half dead on the side of the road. Now understand, this is being told to a Jewish audience. So the Jewish audience is listening, and and we see here that, that two different people come along first. It says, Verse 31, by chance a priest, this is a Jewish priest, came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. Right here is a Jewish priest who is likely seen as a Jewish hero who will step up and help a Jewish man in need. In the Jewish culture, the priest was a very important person, a very symbol of hope. And here he passes him by on the other side of the road, deliberately putting a safe distance between himself and this dying man. The text doesn't really say, but maybe he is. Maybe he's fearful that he'll become ceremonial unclean. If he were to touch this man or help this man, maybe he was afraid that the bandits were still there. We don't know, but the likely hero a Jewish priest, the one that everybody expected to step up and be neighborly, passes him by. And we see the exact same thing with the Levite here. In verse 32, it says, A temple assistant or a Levite walked over, looked at him lying there, and he too also passed on. 
the other side. The same exact thing could be said for this well-respected Jewish member of society. This Levite also saw this Jewish man, passed him by on the other side of the road. Maybe he too feared ceremonial uncleanliness. We don't know. But the two likely people, both a priest and a Levite, both Jews and well-respected in the community, were seen to hopefully be uh, somebody who would step up and do the right thing. But y'all, they failed to be a neighbor. Now, when we get to verse 33, if there were automobiles back in Jesus' time, we would have been hearing the sque- squealing of the brakes. As verse 33 would have been read, it says, Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Y'all, if you don't understand the feud or the history between the Jews and the Samaritans, it's as old as 722 B.C., This is the year that the Assyrians came in and they conquered Israel and took most of the people into captivity. The Assyrians mingled, they slept with, they had kids with the Jewish remnant here. And this half-Jewish, half-Assyrian kids are the Samaritans. They're descendants of these Jews who mingle with the Gentiles. Therefore, other Jews despise the Samaritans. They consider them a lesser people. They're not fully Jewish by blood or ethnicity, and they don't worship the same way that the Jewish people do. And so they treated them as less than. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever been treated by somebody as less than? Maybe because of your ethnicity, maybe because of the way you look or where you came from. How did you feel towards that person? Here we have a Jewish person hurt, half-naked, half-dead on the side of the road. This Jewish person would have despised this Samaritan, but the Samaritan here has become the standard for how how we ought to be a neighbor and love those who even hate and persecute you. It says that the Samaritan felt compassion for, and he showed mercy to the injured Jew. It's easy, y'all, to feel compassion for and show mercy for those we love, right? But what about those who hate us or despise us because of the way we look or our ethnic backgrounds or better yet, our beliefs? It's not so easy to love them. The parable goes on to emphasize the great lengths the Samaritan took to be a neighbor. He bandaged his wounds. He took him to a hotel. He paid for everything. Y'all, this is an example of, you know, just handing over the Amex card. Hey, take care of this guy. doesn't matter the cost. Whatever, whatever it does, I'm going to leave when I come back. If there's a difference in cost, it doesn't matter. Take care of him. Jesus closes this parable with another question to the lawyer and really to the entire Jewish audience who would have been listening. And, and I don't want you to miss this. He says, Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The lawyer knows the answer, but get this, he can't even bring himself to mention the man's race. He won't dare say it's the Samaritan. He simply answers the one who had mercy on him. Isn't that remarkable? And Jesus says, get this, go and do likewise. Who are we to love? Who are the unlovable? It's those who hate and persecute you. 
who are are the people that we're supposed to show biblical love to? It's those who hate and persecute you and despise you. Quite convicting. So how do we do that? I have five, five takeaways. This is what I always do every time I teach. I always say this is the application portion or the so what. So we heard the what part of the Bible. What does the Bible teach on this topic? So what? What does this parable mean to us today? How are we to love the unlovable? And the first lesson, y'all, is don't count the reward. What do I mean by this? Don't count the reward. We don't love the unlovable people in our lives because we know it's the right thing to do. That's not the reason we show mercy. Compassion is the reason we show mercy. We are moved by compassion to love because Jesus first loved us. And we desire that the unlovable people in our lives experience that kind of biblical love, that sacrificial love. That's why we do it. Not for the reward. Don't count the reward. Second, don't count the risk. Right, Both the priest and the Levite counted the risk. The good Samaritan didn't. Being neighborly, especially to those who hate us, can be and will be, get this, messy. But we can't show mercy unless we are willing to leave our comfort zone. And friends, let me just tell you, evangelical Christianity in the Western world is sitting in a comfort zone. And we are afraid to step outside that comfort zone and help our brothers and sisters who are in need. Don't count the risk. Third, don't shift the blame. This is the easiest thing, and for some reason we all love to do this. We always will say this, someone else will handle that. Someone else will do that. When we see somebody in need, somebody else will take care of that. Or the church, you know, the church with the capital C will take care of that. The good Samaritan didn't shift the blame. He transformed his convictions into action. And what did we say biblical love is? It's an action. So when you see a need and you address that need, and God is pleased when his children do that. Don't shift the blame. Fourth, don't count the sacrifice. The good Samaritan was a traveler too. We can't forget that. He had to be somewhere, but he rearranged his priorities. He rearranged his schedule to attend to this wounded man. Mercifulness calls for sacrifices. We can't show mercy unless we are willing to sacrifice ourselves. Biblical love is sacrificial. Don't count the sacrifice. Fifth and final, don't count the cost. The Good Samaritan had to shoulder the financial cost or the welfare of the wounded man. Mercy is costly because everything in our society comes with a price. We will not count the cost if we truly want to show mercy. Cost isn't just financial. It also involves the other two big T's, like I say, time, talent, and treasure, right? There's there's a time component and a talent component. Showing mercy can also be costly in both your time, talent, and your treasure. Friends, don't count the cost. If we want to love the unlovable, if we want to love them in a biblical manner, we need to take action. We need to realize that it's other-centered, it's sacrificial, and it's contra-conditional, 
and that we have to step out and love those who hate us and despise us. May God be the one who guides us week in and week out as we attempt to love the unlovable. We'll see you here next week for another episode, part two of Loving the Unlovable. I'm your host, Patrick Ransom. I'm hopeful to see you here again soon. May God bless you and be with you always. Amen.